What I'd like to do over the three talks that I have is first to introduce to you an African's perspective of what's going on in the church. Now I know you are all experts <laughs> and my brother bishops here will be even more expert <laughs> than I am. Uh, but I want to give you something of a lived-in experience. And that's what I'll do tonight. And then tomorrow, I will focus on two parables of Jesus, the sower in the morning and the prodigal son in the evening. So you might like to read those before you come to the meetings tomorrow. Uh, but tonight, it will be much more of an introductory meeting of what I, where I feel the African church is at. Now, that's a bit of a grandiose claim, the African church. I, I can't speak on behalf of the African church. I can only really speak to some extent on the Zambian church. That's the one church I know. I have served as a minister in, uh, in Zimbabwe, so I know a little bit more about Zimbabwe church. I travel relatively widely through Africa, and so I know generally some of the things that are going on there. But what I would like to share with you tonight is where I feel the, the Zambian church is, and, and by extension the African church is, and what my aspirations are for the Christian church in Zambia. And especially for those Africans like me who teach the Bible in Zambia. I'm sure you have heard it said that the church in Africa is like a river two miles wide and two inches, only two inches deep. It's a bit of an insult. And as a general statement, as they say, it's generally true, not in all specifics. I, I don't know who coined it, but I take it that many people feel it is generally true. So I ask myself, if it is generally true, what evidence is there to show for, uh, for that statement? We all know about the phenomenal growth of the church in, in Africa. And it won't be too long before there are far more Christians. In fact, I think I understand that the average Christian today in the world is a 37-year-old Ugandan woman. <laughs> that that they, they represent the average Christian in the world. And that is growing. That is growing. The phenomenal growth of the church in sub-Saharan Africa is, is legendary. We know about that. I'm always amazed when I go to worship in Zambia, especially if I'm preaching in a church that meets in a classroom in a primary school. Every, just about every secondary school, every primary school, will have three or four or five churches. That's quite apart from the church buildings themselves. 
and the church continues to grow. And um, this, this situation doesn't quite correlate with what I call the moral fiber of African countries, African governments, especially African governments, or I should say Zambian government. Uh, other Africans can make their own statements. Moral, economic, intellectual, political, cultural, theological developments don't seem to be keeping pace with what one would expect of such explosive growth in numbers in the church in Africa. And that seems to me to be frightening, not least because of the place the African church is destined to play in the development of Christianity over the next 50, 100 years, along with Asia and Latin America. It is said that the southern continents will provide Christian leadership, not just for the southern continents, but for the whole world. One person who should know better, uh, Professor Andrew Wars, makes this point very strongly when he states, the Christianity typical of the, first, of the 21st century will be shaped by the events and processes that take place in the southern continents, and above all, by those that take place in Africa. And the most astonishing difference in the Christian world since 1910, lies in Africa. Making these statements, he echoes the sentiments expressed by Dr. Professor John Mbiti when he said, the centers of the church's universality are no longer in Geneva, Rome, Athens, Paris, London, New York, but Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. Andrew Wars cautiously but optimistically and positively adds, I suspect there will be a special responsibility lying upon African theologians for constructing the new theologies of the political and economic realms that we need. One reason is simply that the situations which theology must address in Africa are starker and more convulsive than elsewhere. Now we can list these convulsive situations. Tribalism is a major, major problem, not just in the countries, but in the churches. We've got famine, we've got genocide, We've got poverty, we've got drought, we've got civil war, we've got the HIV pandemic. Uh, in many countries, reversing populations, although that seems to have been arrested now. We've got maladministration and political corruption. If African Christian theology shows no leadership in these and many other areas, the future of the church worldwide holds only 
uncertainty, distortion, and fear. So if the church in Africa that holds so much promise is to step up to the plate and provide the leadership that will be required, it must, in my view, mature. It must grow into maturity. And the rest of what I hope to, to, to do this evening is to show how that might happen or also to look at why it hasn't happened as easily as we would have liked. And my contention is that the African church, those of us like me who teach theology in Africa and from Africa, that in many ways we have nothing new or fresh to add to what the Donald Guthrie's of this world have taught us, what the Howard Marshalls have taught us, what the great mentors we've had have taught us. We, we have been formed in our thinking by a colonial background. We have been formed in our theologizing by mission work, which so many of you or all of you are involved in. And I'll try and show you how that has impacted someone like me and how in a way that has stunted the freedom that we ought to have in order to express theological issues in a way that reflects where we're coming from and how the wealth of good things that God has deposited in Rwanda, in Burundi, in Congo, in Zambia, and so on, how so many of those things are not being reflected in our theologizing. You know, it is said that one of the greatest principles of Christian expansion is called translation. At the linguistic level, that's what we get when Bibles are translated into local languages, vernacular languages in all these countries. But beyond that, there is also a cultural translation. And the, this is at the heart of the Christian faith. And we know that the early church, Paul and Barnabas, fought hard for this principle to be established. Because the Judaizing Christians were saying, no, we have to have the, um, the superiority and supremacy of Jewish culture and Jewish expression of theology. And Paul and Barnabas felt that new insights which they had gained in, in their contact with the Lord and in their appointment to, to be apostles said that each culture is worthy of the honor of hosting the gospel and showing how that would, would happen. And in order to do that, firstly, they had to destigmatize because the Jews looked down upon all other cultures. They had to get rid of that mentality and accept that every culture is the same in the eyes of God. And not only that, but they needed to relativize the Jewish culture 
which in terms of theology had until this time been the only officially sanctioned medium for conveying divine revelation. When, when I deal with the parables tomorrow, I'll try and show how thinking as a Bemba person, which I am, um, how, how that would look like in dealing with the parables of Jesus. But that's to anticipate tomorrow. Let me introduce my part of Africa to you. I am a Zambian, and I hope you can see that lopsided shape. Looks like a bit of a butterfly flying to, to the north. It's got a lot of Congo that's come right into the heart of Zambia. Now, now the story is a gentleman called Codrington went to that part of Katanga and said to the chief there, we would like to take over your country. And he said, well, what would you like to give me if you're going to do that? And he said, well, we've brought these presents for you. And the gentleman says, this is not enough. Oh, okay, we'll go back and bring something else. So he went back. And while he was away, the Belgians arrived. They shot the chief and they took the country. And that's why there is that, uh, that bit of Congo that juts into, into Zambia. That's my country. That's where I come from. There it is. And um, I must be one of, I don't know how many Zambians, who's been to every one of those districts in the country. They, between 1976 and 1984, I worked for the Scripture Union. And in my job, I, it was my responsibility to visit every Scripture Union group in every secondary school in the country. And that took me to all, those, all the towns you can see there and many more that are not marked uh, on there. So I can speak with a measure of authority regarding the church in Zambia. I have preached in just about every one of those towns uh, more than once during those years and later on in my other uh, types of work. But I want to introduce you to my mother culture, which is Bemba. And I, we could present culture... Uh, making a difference between what is called the deep culture, stuff that you never see, and the surface culture. If you take um, an architectural metaphor, we have the foundations and the superstructures. We, if we take a botanical metaphor, we have a tree with roots and the stem, and in terms of the human body, we have the physical side of human being and the values. So there are the buildings. You may recognize them. Uh, the tree and the roots and the human being, the outside and the inside. But what I'm really interested in is those rings on the right. Those rings constitute uh, the Bemba world view. I'm going to choose six elements of the Bemba worldview which I'll present to you. And the first is what we might call religion. 
It's a bit of a misnomer because in my understanding of the Bemba language, we do not have the word religion. What we have are practices. And those practices are not uniform, systematic. Systematization, I think, was introduced by the Reverend Professor Dr. John Mbiti when he wrote his book on African philosophy and religions. Uh, and that was the beginning of an attempt to systematize. The um, anthropologists had had a go in setting up what is called African traditional religions. My understanding is there is no such thing as African religion. They're just African religious practices which differ even within the same clan or, or tribe. But within religion, we have especially the spirit world. Our understanding of reality is that what we see, nature, is, is the smaller part of what there is in the universe. The bigger part is the spirit world. God at, at the top and a whole host of spirits coming down right up to where we are. And there is, my, my appreciation of Western culture is that between supernature and nature, there is a big boundary. But in that boundary, which is actually solid, in that boundary there are some passing points, like prayer. And if you become charismatic, there are a few more passing points. <laughs> but, but by and large, it's a solid wall. Whereas for us as Bemba people, there is no fence there. We come and go, and they come and go. We engage with the spirit world every day in every way. And one of the reasons why I think Christianity has taken root in Africa so successfully is because of this openness to spirit things. But therein lies a danger. Therein lies a danger. Some other spirit wind blows and we could see reversals. We could see reversals that would be frightening to contemplate. So there is, there is religion. There's no distinction between sacred and secular. And as I say, what happens in supernature um, affects us. Then there is the question of group. And um, that starts with the smallest significant group is not the nuclear family, let alone the individual. For us, it is the extended family. That's what defines who I am. Those are my people, my relatives. The children of the same womb are significant, but they're not the most significant in that family. And that group is very significant. We move from the extended family to the clan and from the clan to the tribe. Now, if we lived in a village in Zambia, then the family would be very clearly defined as the extended family. We move away from the traditional roots of the family and go, say, to an urban center, then everybody who comes from our traditional areas is one of us. If we move to the UK, then everybody who comes from Zambia is one of us. 
the group is very, very important. And do remember that there were spirit-filled believers whose spirituality had been honed in the East African revival, who in that mad period of 100 days in Rwanda picked up their machetes and hacked to death spirit-filled believers because the group was threatened or perceived to have been threatened. It's a very strong part of our psyche and of our understanding. As far as I know, I haven't seen any major theological works from Africans dealing with this issue. And and that's something that I would like to see to encourage amongst Africans. I'll leave this one uh, aside at the moment. Uh, But life after death, life after death is not the end of life. For us, we, we, we regard the departed as very much part of us. Richard Giman, uh, working in East Africa, wrote a book called the, the Living Dead. And the Living Dead is that generation of people who have just died. As far as we are concerned, they're still part of us. And the way we keep them in the family as members is through a process of inheritance. And I'll come back to that tomorrow when we deal with the prodigal son. Inheritance is a very important part of uh, our being and it brings into our community today all those who have departed. And they live, as as, uh, Professor Mbiti uh, says clearly that they, they live as real human beings impacting the way we live for quite a long time until the generations that knew them and knew the person who had inherited them. When that generation passes, then they become disembodied spirits and they move back into, into history as it were. African time. (laughs) You know, John stood here and said, it's 8 o'clock, we better start. (laughs) Presumably she would have done that if the room was half full. Now, you know, if I was chairing, I looked out and there was this tremendous hubbub of friends catching up, meeting up and hugging and so on and on. Well, you wait until they finish. You, you don't force them to stop what they're doing in order to start the meeting on time. You see, in our view, time has no value in itself. It's people who give it value. And as long as those people are there or not there, time, time doesn't matter. So as long as I've got things to say and you're sitting there, come 9.15, I just carry on because I've got things to say. (laughs) Amen, amen. (laughs) But the important thing is to say we, we value the person in front. And as long as there are issues to, to continue dealing with, what lies ahead can wait. 
And that's what causes so many problems. Blacks are always late. Africans are always late. You can't trust them and so on and on. All those sort of uh, conclusions that are made by people who don't seem to understand us. Definitions of truth. The statement that John Bottrell is chairing a conference at, at, at the Hayes Conference Center, that statement is true because the words in the statement correspond to the reality on the ground. And we are able to define truth that way. But we're also able to define truth based on what's happening, the social circumstances. So if, for example, I let on that I belong to Al-Qaeda and that I have a sleeping network and that we are going to do this, that, or the other, and one of you whose ears uh, are open to these things, you pick that up and you take it to the people who need to know and they start investigating and you know that if they get hold of me, then they're going to cause problems. I'll be locked up or whatever. So they come to you, and you're a good friend of mine, and they say to you, did Joe admit that he belongs? I don't, by the way. (laughs) Just in case. Just in case. (laughs) I do not. I've never belonged to a terrorist organization, and I don't intend to do so. Um, if they come to you, and you're a good friend of mine, and they say to you, did Joe say these things? At that point, protecting me becomes the truth. And so you say, no, I was there. I heard him speak. He said no such thing. Now, when all my people meet you and hear what you had said in, in protecting me, they will say, you are a truthful person. They know you lied. But at that point, that is the truth. You're a true person because you protected your own. And again, I don't know how many times. I went to buy milk one day. Mr. Gent is one of those uh, white people who went to work in northern Rhodesia, probably went with the army in the Second World War and liked the place and stayed there. And eventually he ran uh, a big farm, a good farm. And um, I used to go and buy milk from him. I knew a little bit about Mr. Gent, apart from the fact that he was a farmer. He, he was a Rotarian, and through that Rotary Club, they used to raise loads of money to buy wheelchairs for orphan children in, uh, with disabilities in a particular, uh, uh, particularly isolated um, uh, uh, orphanage. So I knew that about him. I knew he was a generous man. But one day I heard him say, in my hearing, he wasn't saying it to me, but it was in my hearing, because you know all these black people are liars and thieves. So shall I kick him in the shins? I'm sure I can do some damage here. But then his milk is quite good and my wife is expecting me to bring milk home. Why did he say such a thing? He knew I was standing there. I've never stolen from him. I've never lied to him. So why did he say that? 
And as I investigated this, uh, it really worried me. I had the opportunity to do an MA in social anthropology, and that was the focus of my studies. And it became clear to me that we do have this way of defining truth, uh, social definitions of truth. And that's what causes that particular problem. Okay, so now those are the values and many, many others which are deep down inside us. Go back to the building. We have the superstructure and we have the underground, which is the foundation, which we never see. And, and that, those values are there deep down. They come out and affect the way we live. But they are what makes us who we are. Now, when the David Livingstone, for example, when he went out, his understanding of um, things anthropological was that there was no such thing as cultures plural. There was only culture singular. That there was this continuum which started from the most primitive and went right to the most civilized. So if you go as a missionary to work with people here, your job, apart from planting the gospel, is to move them as quickly as possible to come over here. And what then tended to happen is that this, what we see, changed. Because these changes, the expressive cultures, change very easily and quickly. I use English. It's not my mother tongue. I wear clothes which reflect this part of the world. Well, I don't know about the tie. Is anybody else wearing a tie in here? <laughs> ah, there's a nice gentleman here. He's got a tie. Yeah. No one. <laughs> Thanks, William. <laughs> The, the expressive culture can change and change very easily and very quickly. And in many ways, because there was not any concerted effort to engage with the values of those cultures, because after all, those are the things we want to get them away from. The concept of cultures has, has now changed, and everybody recognizes that each culture has its uncivilized elements and its civilized elements. But what it has done for a church like the Bemba Church is that it's left the values untouched. And they emerge. They emerge and devastate the doctrines that we try and teach so clearly. Well, let me work through this quickly. I'll put all these up because uh, I, I forgot everything I said about African time. I am watching the clock <laughs> on the, uh, and watching Joan because she's getting nervous now. Uh, so those things that those circles have put around the values, that, those are the the human institutions we build. Those are the expressive elements of our culture. And what happens in Zambian culture is that the core values permeate and affect all these human institutions. And 
they affect the expression of Christianity as well. And what I pray for, and what I long for, God giving me strength, is to work towards a situation where what we have gained from the gospel will travel back through the expressive culture into the core values. And there, the Lord do something tremendously significant to transform those values. And then hopefully, we will then have those same transformed values, still Ugandan, still Zambian, still Burundi, evidently so, but they now are transformed by the Spirit of God, and therefore they affect our marriages, our concept of humanhood, our governments, our, 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 the way we spend leisure time, and, and right through to the way we do church. And when that happens, we will have an authentic Zambian Christianity. That, in the words of Paul, will bring something from that culture, something that you don't find anywhere else, but something that is from God himself. That's what we will bring to the table. That's what we will bring to complete the whole counsel of God. For the moment, sadly, as the late Kwame Bediako used to say, what we are giving are answers to questions nobody is asking. And that's one of the reasons why it can be said with some justification that the church in Africa is two miles wide and two inches deep. I wish you can catch a vision of what I'm trying to say here. One of the sad things over the last 15 years, uh, I rejoice in seeing so many young short-termers going out and enthusiastic about what they're going to do. This work is long-term. This work is long-term. And anybody who is in an interest in the church in Africa, this seems to me to be where it is at. And if Andrew Wars is right in saying African the African Christian Church will provide leadership for the next 100, 200, 300, 400 years for the Christian Church, then this is urgent work that needs to be done and done now. John.